the Oasis. Let's try that again. Good morning. There we go. You're awake. We are so glad that you're here this morning. Wonderful time of worship. Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. We're going to be looking at the passage from verse 27 through 40 this morning. Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 27 through verse 40. Speaking of the greatness of our God, I want to begin with this thought this morning. If you actually look at verse 26, the very last verse we touched on last week, we are reminded that after they tried to challenge Jesus, because we're in the Gospel of Luke where we're looking at the story of Jesus, and what can the story of Jesus teach us about him, our Lord and Savior, and teach us about being a disciple, a follower of his. And, and what we see there is that those who were challenging him were stunned by his answer and they fell silent. They literally had no answer because they were rejecting the answer and the answer is Jesus. He's always our answer and through him we can always find our answer. Well, the reason I want to bring that up is if you go down to verse 40 in the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, you have sort of a similar reaction. You have some in the crowd who uh, tell Jesus you have spoken well, but then it says that at this point in Jesus' ministry, which meant that there was only a few days left, that they dared not ask him any more questions after that. In a sense, Luke is telling us Jesus prevails. That through every challenge that was given to him, through everyone that tried to come up to him during his earthly ministry and trip him up and, and throw a zinger at him and watch him fail, that every time he rose to the occasion and he was more than enough. He overcame every opposition, every challenge. Jesus always prevails. The reason I want to start there this morning is there's a verse in the book of Hebrews that is very applicable to us when it comes in regards to re being reminded that Jesus prevails. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, the author says this, Think of him, speaking of Jesus, think of him who endured so much opposition against himself by sinners, lest you and I grow weary in our souls and give up. The Bible is telling us, never get to a place in your life where you give up, where you give up on God, you give up on his word, you give up on his plan, you give up on life, you give up on living life, don't ever give up. And how do we do that? By reminding ourselves about thinking on Jesus, literally putting our minds down on Jesus and recalling all of the opposition and challenges that he faced. Because many times, even as God's people, we begin to think that something unusual is happening to us when we face challenges and opposition in our life. Or that somehow, you know, well, this never happened to anybody else but us. It even happened to the Son of God. And yet, Jesus prevailed. And if Jesus prevails, then he can enable his people to prevail 
as well. Now, in the passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at this morning, it really is all about the resurrection. That's sort of why we sang some songs about the resurrection this morning. Probably at the beginning of our worship, you thought, did I miss it? Is this Easter? Instead of, you know, May 28th, the Pentecost Sunday. No, it's dealing with the passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at today. And what I want to remind us of before we get into the passage is this. It is not just significant, important, essential, and all of that about how you and I live as God's people. It's equally important, if not more important, about what we believe. Because what we believe, each of us in this room, really determines how we live. It shapes everything about us. Our entire perspective on life, how to navigate life, what life and all of that is going to be about goes back to what we believe. And so what we believe, that's where it all starts. Everything that you and I do in life flows from what we truly believe. What are our convictions? What are we confident about? And, and I say that because at the very beginning of this passage of Scripture, Jesus is once again challenged, if you will, by a group of religious leaders in his day. They were called, notice in verse 27, the Sadducees. What made the Sadducees significant is that they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in anything after this life. Basically, you died, you were buried, and that was it. There is no resurrection. And therefore, everything that they did in life and how they lived their life was based on the fact that they did not believe in resurrection. They did not believe in anything after this life. It reminds me of the passage of Scripture in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. If you know your Bible, you know that 1 Corinthians 15 is called the resurrection chapter because in that chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is doing nothing but talking about the resurrection and everything about the resurrection. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 12, he says, now Christ is being preached that he is raised from the dead. How then are some of you saying there is no resurrection? Because then Paul says, well, if there is no resurrection, then there's huge implications for that, right? Based upon what we believe. If, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then he says all of us who are preaching Jesus rose from the dead, our preaching's futile. And our faith in the resurrection is empty. If the dead are not raised, then he says, then Jesus is obviously not raised. And in fact, those of us that are going around telling people that Jesus has been raised from the dead are actually false witnesses against God because God then never raised his son Jesus from the dead if the dead are not raised. 
He goes on to say, if the dead are not raised, that means that you and I who believe in Jesus will actually die in our sins. There's no hope for us. Not only that, he says, but then all those who passed away and have died before us, they just perished. There's nothing beyond the grave. We just bury people and that's it. And Paul finally says then in verse 19, he says, if we only have hope in Christ for this life, he said, we ought to be pitied above all people on the earth. But then he makes this declarative statement in verse 20. He says, but now Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? That's why you and I can have the hope that we have as we live life knowing that death is not the end for us and eternal life awaits us. All because of what we have come to believe. Now, I want to just take a moment today. I don't want to spend too much time here, but I hope that this little story of mine that happened to me personally in my life many years ago, I hope that it will be an encouragement to some of you. Because when this took place, I was in my early 20s. And though I believed in Jesus and I believed in the resurrection and all of that, I got to be honest, I wasn't quite as confident, if you would say, that I am now or as assured in my faith now as obviously I was back then. I, I've grown into being much more confident and, and assured in my faith. So in my early 20s, I was still sort of being grounded, if you will, and, and rooted in what I believed and why I believed it. I had an opportunity in my early 20s when I went to seminary to have a sort of mini debate, if you will, or discussion with a man at that time in the early 80s who was known as the world's number one atheist. His name was Dr. Anthony Flew, F-L-E-W, if you want to look him up. He's been dead now for many years. He had many earned doctoral degrees. He was the head of the philosophy and religious department at the University of Oxford and had been that for 35 plus years at that point. I mean, here was a man that as far as the world's concerned, there's nobody more intellectual, that there's nobody who, you know, would stand above him, right? If, if anybody is going to shake you know, the confidence that, that we might have about what we believe, it would be somebody like him. Here I am, a 21, 22-year-old young man, and I'm sitting there in the room with this man. And I realized as we began to talk about the resurrection, something he does not believe in, obviously, that everything the Bible taught me about why I believe in my Jesus and why I believe he rose from the dead, he had no answer for. There was nothing that he could do to refute the reality of the resurrection, even though he doesn't believe it. Because in 2,000 years since Jesus rose from the dead... Everything that those that don't believe in Jesus rising from the dead use to try to 
give them some foundation for not believing in it. They're such lame arguments. They hold no weight. They, they can't stand up to the truth, right? So the reason I'm saying that is I walked out of the room that day realizing that there would never be anybody that I would ever come in contact with on the face of the planet that would be more qualified to be able to tear down what I believe in than the man I was just sitting across from in that room, and he couldn't do it. And it gave me such confidence, such assurance that if he couldn't do it, I'll never run into anybody that can do it because there's never been anything brought up by the other side who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And so I say all that to say to you, maybe you're here today and you're like me. You were a young person or maybe a new Christian and you were really wondering, yeah, I do believe in Jesus. I do believe he rose from the dead. But I just wish I was a little bit more sure, a little bit more confident, a little bit more assured in what I believe. I hope that that story will maybe bring that about. Because Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. That is the facts of history. That is the truth that can be verified. In fact, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that one of the reasons why Jesus Christ hung around on earth for 40 days after he rose from the dead was to give people irrefutable evidence. I saw him. In fact, the Apostle Paul, I saw him. How many eyewitnesses saw the risen Jesus? And the Bible tells us there were also, God raised many other people from the dead after Jesus rose from the dead. And they were walking the streets of Jerusalem. How would you like to have your uncle who died like five years ago and all of a sudden there's Uncle Joe. Look at him. He was dead. Now he's alive. He's walking around. He's in our house. He's eating with us. Would you not believe in the resurrection or that God has the power to raise people from the dead if your own relative who you know had died and was buried in a cemetery somewhere where was now eating dinner with you? You sure would. At least I hope you would. But here come the Sadducees. And you know what they want to do? They want to use some kind of crazy scenario to try to disprove the resurrection and eternal life. So they say, well, Jesus, we got, a, we got something for you. You see, here's how ridiculous believing in eternal life and resurrection is. You know, there's this law in the Bible called the kinsman redeemer. If you know the book of Ruth and the story of Boaz and Ruth, you know all about the kinsman redeemer. A woman has a husband, they don't have any children yet. Husband dies. Somebody else in the family, another male, has to step up and take that person's place to carry on the family line. So they give Jesus a scenario that this happened seven times to this woman. And now at the end of her life, she has seven husbands. And basically they're like, now how confusing and chaotic would that be if all those people up there in heaven one day that, that have married her and now she's got seven husbands, how does that all wash out? Crazy, right, Jesus? How can you even believe in something? And Jesus' answer is, well, first of all, you're making a big mistake. 
You're trying to interpret what eternity is going to be like based on your lens of what earthly life is like. And that's why in verses 34 and 35, you'll notice two words that Jesus uses. He says, that age and this age. And he says, you're trying to interpret what that age, the age of eternal life, the age of in heaven is going to be like by earthly life. And he says, it's going to be totally different. It's not going to be the same. There's going to be so much about eternal life and life in heaven that is way different. And now we only know in part. One day, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 or, verse, or chapter 13, we will know fully. But right now, we only know part of what that's going to be like. And Jesus is saying to them, why are you using some crazy scenario that might happen to somehow then come to the conclusion that there's no such thing as resurrection or eternal life? Jesus is basically saying, well, that's crazy and that's not even logical because that age is going to be so different than this age. And you and I, even as Christians today, we can't start trying or we shouldn't start trying to make conclusions about what we think life in heaven is going to be like based on what earthly life is like because they're going to be two completely different things. If the Bible hasn't talked to us about what heaven is like, then don't waste your time trying to speculate or think about it. God gives us everything we need to know, but not everything we want to know. And I truly believe that part of the reason why God hasn't told us all that we want to know about heaven and our heavenly existence is because much of it we couldn't absorb or take in or understand anyway on this side of eternity. So Jesus is saying, just hold on there. Trust what you know is right in front of you. And the reality of resurrection is right in front of you. Then Jesus says something else that we need to touch on this morning. In verse 35, he uses the phrase, those who are regarded as worthy will become sons and daughters of the resurrection and will die no more. I know that that word worthy is going to raise some antennas, right? Because we as Christians are like, well, regard as worthy, we're not worthy, right? Exactly. You see, the way Jesus used this phrase, it speaks about a worthiness that comes to us from an outside source. Not a worthiness that we have that's inherent within us, but a worthiness that we are granted, a worthiness that we are given. And that's exactly aligned with what the message of the Bible is. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5, Paul says we are made worthy of the kingdom of God. Made worthy because there are none who are worthy of it. There are none of us that can be good enough, that can attain to being perfect enough to the kingdom of God. That takes perfection, and we all will fall short of that. That's why the Bible teaches it is by grace that we are saved through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God so that none of us have a foundation or reason to boast. 
you see. That's why we sing songs like, worthy is who? The Lamb. It's not our worthiness. We are made worthy through the worthiness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how everyone here today and those who are watching who will end up in heaven one day through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that's how we get there. Not based upon our own worthiness, but upon the worthiness of the Lamb, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Then if you go down to verse 37, Jesus is going to turn the tables on the Sadducees. One of the other distinctions of the Sadducees compared to the Pharisees and other sort of sects within the Jewish spiritual leadership of Israel is that the Sadducees only accepted and believed in the first five books of Moses. Our first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They only held to those five books. So notice what Jesus does. He uses a quotation from the books that they say they believe in. He says, hey, did not even Moses reveal that he believed in the resurrection of the dead when he wrote in the book of Exodus that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He didn't say God was as if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do not exist any longer. They're dead, they're gone, they're buried, that's it. He says they are. He is the God of Abraham, meaning that they're still very much alive. They're still very much conscious, but it's just not here on earth. He used their own scripture that they say they believe in to show them that it's right in front of them. The reality of the resurrection taught by God, and yet they still have not accepted it. We'll get to that in just a moment, more on that, because that's really important. But then Jesus says in verse 38, God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living, and all live before him. He's saying, look, it is the transformation of resurrection that makes eternal life all possible. And death is not the end. Death is just a new beginning. That's why Jesus could say to the thief on the cross that very day that he was crucified next to, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's why you and I live in the hope of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, that if this house, speaking of our earthly body, if this house is dissolved, we know that we have a body built by God in the heavens, made for eternity. That's why we know and have confidence that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why we know and have confidence in what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50. He says, now this I say, brothers and sisters. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Let me tell you a mystery, Paul says. We shall not all sleep 
sleep or die, but we will all be changed. For in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and imperishable and we all will be changed. For this mortal body must put on immortality and this perishable body must put on imperishable body. And so when this perishable puts on the imperishable and when this mortal puts on the uh, immortal, he says, then that which is written will be fulfilled. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has already given every believer our victory. As we say many times around here, we as believers in Jesus Christ do not have to fight for victory. We fight from victory. We already have the victory through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, if Jesus rose from the dead, then that proves everything that Jesus said and claimed. It means he really is the Son of God. That eternal life really does reside in him. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father but by him. It proves everything. So you either have to have a woman. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything we believe in is gone. There's nothing that you and I believe in that is true or right if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead. But if he did, it proves everything that we believe in. You see, our faith literally rests on the foundation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul could say in Romans 1, verse 5, he was appointed the Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. But then Paul goes on to say this in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if we have been given victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, then that means there's implications for how you and I as believers in his resurrection and believers in Jesus should approach every day. And here's what Paul says. It means that we should be firm and not be moved. Too many Christians waver. Too many Christians are back and forth, tossed back and forth like the waves of a sea. Paul says, if you and I believe in the Lord Jesus and in his resurrection, we should be firm. We should be fixed. We should be setting our life on a course that does not deviate and is not drawn away to wander down another path. We should be steadfast. We should be not moved. And then he goes on to say, if Jesus truly rose from the dead, then all of us as Christians should always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding in the work of the Lord. Going above and beyond serving our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For he goes on to say, for you know that your labor your blood, your sweat, and your tears as a Christian that you pour out in service to your God. You know 
that it's never going to be in vain in the Lord. You know that one day, all that you have done for the Lord is not going to be pointless or fruitless or without effect or worthless in any way. It will be worth it all when you see Jesus. Paul's basically saying, if Jesus rose from the dead and you believe in that and you live your life aligned with that truth and you let the truth of the resurrection of Jesus affect you every day, he says, you won't get to heaven and, one, and go one day, oh, I wish I'd have done less for Jesus. It's going to be just the opposite. I wish I would have done more. I wish I would have lived my life as Paul said we should. For those of us who say we believe in resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus, that my life should be characterized as I am a person who's abounding in the work of the Lord. I'm pouring out everything I've got for Jesus every day and all the blood and the sweat and the tears that I am pouring out. I know that one day it will not be in vain. For those who do not believe in Jesus Christ or his resurrection, you realize everything that they live their lives for, they're going to wake up one day in eternity and realize it is in vain because they live their lives for the temporal, physical, material things of this life. As the Bible says, and I know this to be a fact, you know this to be a fact, it says we were naked when we came into this world and we're naked when we go out. And I've done hundreds upon hundreds of memorial services over 38 years as a pastor and not one person has taken anything physical, material with them into the next life. And yet that's what many people live for today. We live for the pleasures of this world. We live for all this stuff. And yet the day that we die, we just leave it to somebody else to take care of because we can't take it with us. Now, for the last few moments that we have together this morning, though, I want to go back up to the beginning of the passage there in verse 27 where we see that this group called the Sadducees come and they don't believe in the resurrection and how Jesus uses even their own writings to show them that they've missed something. There is a parallel passage in another gospel where this same exchange takes place except in the gospel of Matthew chapter 22, Matthew adds something that Jesus said to them that Luke leaves out. We don't know why. But I want to refer to this because it is, to me, the key that unlocks everything for us this morning and how this whole passage can really even become more powerful of an influence in our life. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 29 Here's what Jesus says to that same group of Sadducees during this same conversation that, again, Matthew records, but Luke does not. 
Jesus looks right at the Sadducees and makes this incredible and powerful statement. He says to them, you are deceived, or literally in the Greek, you are in error. And here's why. Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. That's the title for the message. When I saw that, I'm like, this is the title for today's message. You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Why is that so incredible? Let's remember who he's talking to. He's talking to a group of the religious leaders of Israel. He's talking to a group of men who do nothing but read their Bible every day. In fact, they probably have most of the first five books of the Bible memorized. And yet Jesus is saying to them, you don't know your Bible. We got to talk about that. He's telling religious leaders of Israel who say they believe in God, you don't know the power of God. So it's not like he's talking to atheists. It's not like he's talking to pagans. He's talking to religious people, the most religious people in his day and age. And he's telling them, as he's looking at them, eyeball to eyeball, you don't know your Bible and you don't know the power of God. By the way, this word know that he uses in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine is the very same Greek word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 when he says, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Knowing it. What's that word know means? It means to be able to grasp spiritual truth to be fully aware and appreciate something. I think that's what Jesus is saying to us who we claim to be God's people. I think he wants to check and say, do you know? Or is there something right in front of you that you are reading and seeing and you're missing it. Or maybe something that God wants to reveal to you, but you're not willing to see it. Because that's exactly where the Sadducees were. They had read these verses about resurrection from the first five books of Moses their whole life, and yet they missed it. Jesus says you never grasped what was right in front of you. You never accepted and embraced what God wanted to reveal to you even though you were so familiar with it. It just went right over your head. What good does it do you then? If God clearly says something to you or wants to say something to you, wants to speak into your life and you're unwilling to receive it or to grasp it, you fully don't appreciate it. I even think in my early Christian life, I would have said about myself looking back that I could sing songs about the power of God. 
all hail the power of Jesus' name. I would, I would go as a youngster and we would sing about, I sing the mighty power of God. And I would say in my head, yeah, I believe in the power of God, but it hasn't been until I really started to grow in the Lord spiritually and grow up in the Lord and mature that I really believe I come to fully appreciate the power of God and stand before you today as one who's fully convinced and has the greatest of conviction that my God can do anything. There is nothing too hard or too difficult for him. And that's not something I know here. That's something I believe here. I know it. I know it. And God wants us all to get there, to where we are fully appreciating and we are fully aware and we are grasping what God wants to reveal to us. There may be no more powerful statement that Jesus ever makes to a group of human beings than what Matthew records in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. It'd be like Jesus showing up here and saying to us, you say you believe in me, but you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You read my word. You may even have some of my word memorized. You may even be meditating on my word, but it's going right past you. There's something right in front of you that you're not getting. And I want you desperately to get it. I want you to be open to it. See, so often as Christians even, we come to God and we either want to put him in a box or we want to put our relationship with him in a box and God has to work this way and it's got to be contained in this box here. And if God doesn't work in this way where I'm comfortable and I'm familiar in my box, if he starts doing something over here like this, forget it. I'm unwilling to fully be aware of it or appreciate it or allow it to be a part of my walk with him because it's something different. It's something new. And yet that's what God continually says to his people. I want to do something new, but you're not ready for it yet. Do you know, because of the way God is moving and working at the Oasis, that we've actually had some people leave in just the last few months who've been with us for a while? You know why? Because God always worked at the Oasis this way in my little box, and now he's doing some things that I don't like. I'm walking away. Fine, your choice. But if that's what you and I reduce God to, then we're going to miss out on so much that God has for us as a church and as individuals. We need to be willing to say, God, I'm looking to you. You bring into my life what you want to bring and what you want me to see. And give me the eyes to see it, God. Give me the ears to hear it. 
Give me the heart to be able to embrace it, God, because I have realized once again today that here was this group of religious leaders of Israel who lived with no hope of eternal life, no hope of resurrection, and yet the truth and reality of resurrection was standing right in front of them and right within the words that they were reading every day, and they missed it. They missed it. May we not miss one thing that God has for us in this life as a church and as individuals simply because we have determined that God must work this way. God must speak this way. God must do things this way and I've created this box and this is the box that has shaped my belief and as I said at the very beginning, why is what we believe so important? Because what we believe even about our God and how our God works and all of that will determine everything about our life. How we live our life, how we walk with God, everything is determined by what we believe. Yes, how we live is very important, but how we live is always shaped by what we believe. Let's make sure, unlike the Sadducees, that the things that we are embracing that we believe and that we're living by is what God has revealed as his truth. And if there are some things in our life and in our thinking, in our perspective, that are lies, that are not true, then we need to lay those things aside once and for all and not allow lies and untruths to shape our life any longer. Because what does Jesus even say? You shall know the truth, and the truth alone will do what? Set you free. Set you free. Things that do not line up with God or his word will never set us free. It is only his truth and our embracing his truth that will do that for us. May all of us be open to that. May we know what we believe and why we believe it. I'm going to ask Nicole and our worship team to come now. And while they're coming, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand with me and us close our time now in a word of prayer. Father, I would ask today that you just make yourself so real to each of us and to our church family today. Because God, it seems that we as human beings, we can have something standing right in front of us and yet miss it. We, we can have something, Lord, that is so obvious that's just right there, and yet we miss it. That was the unfortunate story of the Sadducees. May that not be our story and the way our story ends. May we, Lord, be open 
to you and what you want to say to us, what you want us to see, and what you want us to do in our life. Help us, God, to look to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.